this morning, I'd like to talk a little bit about childhood memories. Some of us are in the middle of childhood memories. Actually, each and every day is a childhood memory. And some of us, are our childhood memories are very distant in the distant past. Uh, but think about one of those big childhood memories. Uh, maybe there's a couple that are coming to your mind right now. You're thinking about critical moments, maybe big milestones, or maybe some real embarrassing moments, or transitions uh, into early adulthood or whatever. Um, in all of Scripture, there is one story recorded about Jesus' childhood when he was a boy. I believe this is for a very good reason. I believe it's uh, important that it's there. And I'm glad that God has, has given us uh, this story. And this will be our text for this morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. Uh, feel free to uh, join with me. Um, please stand as we read this scripture together. And uh, Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story that has been preserved in Scripture for us to read. And we recognize, God, that we can read this and it could fall on, on deaf ears. It could uh, hit cold hearts. We want it to be more than just a story for us. And so we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would soften our hearts to receive your message this morning. Help us to reflect on the truth that we find in here and help us to apply it into everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a father, and I definitely don't know what it's like to be a mother who has lost a child, um, but I know what it's like to be the son who has been left behind and lost by parents. Many times, this was, I don't know if it was a family tradition that was passed down many generations, but I was left many places. The reunion, though, when the mother finds the child is, is somewhat chaotic, isn't it? It's very emotional, um, and, and often 
not very pleasant. You never know if the mother is overjoyed to see you or very angry at you that you had gone missing. When I was 12 years old, I was also lost. Uh, My mother couldn't find me. Uh, But don't worry, I'm not trying to compare myself to Jesus here. Uh, The similarities uh, end there, (laughs) or are pretty, the list is pretty short. We lived in a small town where we could walk to school, and outside of Cincinnati, a little small suburb outside of the city, and uh, there weren't any school buses, and uh, the day came where, just like any other day, I packed my bag, uh, and I put my books in there, I put my homework in there, and I got dressed, and went down uh, to the breakfast table like any other day. But this day, I decided to do something a little different. Instead of walking out of the house, going down the street, and turning right towards school, I decided to turn left, spend the day kind of on, an, on my own little adventure. Um, our town was surrounded by a, a wooded area, and so I, I went into the woods, and I thought, my mom will never know I was gone. I will, I'll, act, I'll, I'll, I'll get my bag and everything ready, and I'll, I'll go to school, and 3 o'clock will come around, I'll come back like nothing had ever happened, uh, she won't know, and I'll, I'll have this great adventure to talk about uh, to my friends. So I turned left and went into this wooded area, and I started just picking up stones and you know throwing it at squirrels or trying to see, like, I bet I can hit that tree. And I'd, you know, make the, I'd be competitive with myself, and, and I'd, I'd do these little games, and I'd spend the whole day there. You know, lunchtime would roll around, and I'd walk out into the town and uh, kind of incognito and make sure that no one would see me and got some lunch and came back and just spent the day like that. Um, and I thought, and I rehearse this reunion uh, over and over again in my head. When I get home, I will act just tired from the day at school, and not, like nothing had ever happened. Uh, and so I get, I walk up to my front door at three o'clock, and I take a deep breath, and I open the door, and there is my mother greeting me with eyes swollen from crying all day, and and I think to myself, oh no. This might be about me. <laughs> and, 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 and she runs up to me and she says, Where have you been? And because I've rehearsed this situation many times in my head, I have the perfect answer. And I say, What do you mean? <laughs> well, this anticlimactic um, reunion with my mom is, is much like what Luke talks about here. It's interesting how... You know, my mom, she had called the police uh, 15 minutes after I left because the school called her and said, uh, Peter hasn't showed up for school. And so right away, I was, I was on the hook there. And she called the cops. It was a search party out for me, uh, looking everywhere, my normal places I might go, um, and, but never looking in the woods. And uh, you would think about the things that, of course, if you're a mother, um, these thoughts have probably gone through your head at times uh, before. When your child has gone missing, what could be happening? What horrible things could be going on? Uh, even as a father, or or even if you don't have a child, this this feeling of just complete distress and fear about what might be happening, the terror that might be going on in, in uh, Jesus' parents' hearts and minds. So Luke unfolds this similar drama for us as it climaxes with this reunion and surprisingly very short conversation between the boy Jesus and Mother Mary. Luke starts out and tells us how how he got separated from his family. Imagine traveling on donkey, on foot, uh, camel, whatever you have, from Tucson to Phoenix, okay? 
about the distance was from Jerusalem to Nazareth, about a three days walk, maybe two days if you were really quick. Uh, the women and children would be um, leading the pack in front. Okay, so all the women and children would be up front setting the pace for the walk. And all the men and older boys would be in the back. Jesus was this kind of in-between stage, wasn't he? Twelve years old. Um, and, and as it says in Scripture here, that you know they, they looked all around from their family and acquaintances and no one could find it. Imagine that Joseph was thinking, well, Jesus is probably up with the women and children because he's still young enough, maybe he's up there. Mary's probably thinking, well, Jesus is becoming a man uh, soon. He's probably back with Joseph, so no one really worried about it that first full day. So you get to Casa Grande. <laughs> and believe me, the scenery is probably very similar as it was there. And you realize that uh, your child's not with you. Spend a day there, day back, and then a full day in Jerusalem looking for him. And I'm surprised how the mother's saying hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Where have you been? Your father and I have been worried sick. Right? We've heard that all a hundred times. She says in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Uh, That's Jewish for we've been worried sick. You might expect this 12-year-old boy to be frantic, teary-eyed, confused, scared, in a fetal position in the corner somewhere. Young boy, without his family for three days, uh, scared, terrified. That's what I would expect. And yet, Luke tells us that something very different happens. He says in verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Well, this is the climax of our passage. The climax of what I believe. Uh, we can learn about this morning. In this passage, I think we can learn something about the manner that we ought to look and seek for Christ. But also, we can learn about the work and devotion and submission of Jesus to His Father in heaven, to God the Father. First, let's look at the search for Christ. Let's look at ourselves from the perspective of Mary and Joseph as they are seeking for Christ. A question that we might ask this morning and as we look at this passage is, how should we look for Christ? How should we seek for Him? And one answer might be, we need to seek Him with all of our heart. And again, I don't have children. I honestly have gone over this passage a dozen times and I've tried to connect emotionally with what it is like to misplace a child for three days. And I can't understand what that feels like. And, and I don't pretend to know exactly what that feels like. And so I'm grateful that Scripture gives for, for those of us who do not have children and can't connect with this emotionally, there's other analogies and stories in Scripture that talk about how we ought to seek for something of utmost importance. And Matthew talks about, uh, Matthew records the words of Christ as he is explaining how we ought to search for the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What does it mean to search for Christ with our whole heart? 
you know, this buried treasure and this pearl that is found uh, would represent for this audience who is hearing these words a, a new lot, an increase on their lot, a new lease on life, an increase in material value, something that could get them out of poverty. It was their, their hope for a better life, materialistically speaking. There was no, it was a no-brainer for the people hearing this that would say, I want that. That's something that could change my life forever. So why would we seek Christ? Why would these people look for these, this hidden treasure and the, the pearl of great value? Because this was their hope. Not merely for a better life, but for a real life. For new life with purpose and peace and a release from the shame of sin. He is our hope. The moral of the parables is that there's nothing that we could give up, nothing in our life that we could give up that would be more important than Christ. If we could compare anything, nothing would even come close. To the point where we would, if we needed to, and God called us to, that we would forsake everything and that we would just pursue Christ. Isn't it interesting how usually you look for something that's lost? I mean, if you lost something, you go and look for it. But in these two parables, and even in the story of Jesus, all those three things were perfectly fine. They were exactly where they needed to be. They weren't lost. But they were hidden. And so we pursue them because they're hidden, and because they bring incredible value to our life. Christ is our greatest value. His parents were looking for Him because they needed to satisfy their desire to be with Him. He was their child. And without Him in their life, their life was devastated. They looked for Him because they wanted to be with Him. We look for Christ because we want to be with Him. Not long ago, I I met with a friend who was frustrated because he's been looking for Christ for a long time. And he says he hasn't found Him. He, he doesn't feel like God's really presented himself. And so he's giving Christ, he's come to a point in his life where he's given Christ an ultimatum and saying, okay, I want you to show yourself in these ways. I want you to provide this relationship that I've been looking for for a long time with this female friend. I'd like you to give me this job that I've been hunting for. And so Christ, these are things in my life that I want. And if you can provide those things, then I believe that you are real and I will give my life to you. He wanted Christ to show up by answering his prayers for those things. He wanted to find Christ in all these certain places, but where he was looking, Christ wasn't going to be found. He neglected to meet Christ in the very place where he was, the very place where he was hidden. And for us in the story, it was in the temple. And I believe that the temple represents something good for us. It represents where God meets His people. It represents in this Old Testament where, you know, before the the crucifixion, where God would meet His people. Mary and Joseph didn't understand this completely, um, but what we can know where we can find Christ is by looking at this work of Christ. Do you remember in Luke chapter 1 when Mary was told that she would bear a child? 
the angel Gabriel said, He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom there will be no end. If you were Mary and Joseph and you heard that prophecy about the child that you were going to have, what would you think that Jesus would be? He would be a king, wouldn't He? He will have a kingdom, He will have a throne, and He will reign forever. So if you're thinking that your child now is, well, maybe he's preparing for this ministry, where would you look? Maybe at the royal palace, right? Maybe at the the castle of the time. But that's where he he wasn't there. The temple might have been the last place on their list to look. But before Jesus was going to be king, he had to first be our Savior. John chapter 1 says the next day... John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus and he knew that he was going to be the sacrifice. John the Baptist knew exactly where to find God, that he would go to the temple because he was going to provide the sacrifice for you and I. Everyone hearing this proclamation would understand what the Lamb of God exactly was. The Lamb of God. Well, that provides a sacrifice for us. That's where God meets our needs in the temple. That's where He meets uh, our needs for our sin and forgiveness of that sin. We know what the lamb is. It was sacrificed in the temple. And this is the mission of God, and Jesus knew as a, as a young boy exactly what He was supposed to do. He knew how He was going to embrace and carry out the mission of God. And so he went to the temple. And our relationship with God begins in the temple. Before we can proclaim Christ as King of our life and Lord of our life, we must come face to face with this inconvenient truth that we have made mistakes, we have sinned, and Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. So my friend, he might look at all these places. He might want God to be his King. You know, Christ, I want you to take control of my life. I want to, uh, you to be my Lord. I want you to be the king of my life and orchestrating all the plans of my life. I want to be submissive to you as my Lord. But I believe that Christ is saying, before I can be those things, I need to be your Savior. I need to die for your sins, and I need you to believe that I have died for your sins. Jesus understood this. So now as we look at how we should seek Christ with all of our heart, being confronted face on with our sin and the grace and forgiveness that Christ has provided, let's look at this perspective now from Christ's perspective. What did this mean? What does this passage mean about Him and His work? First, His devotion, the devotion of Christ. He says, I must be in my Father's house. I must be in my Father's house. When was the last time that you had to do anything? That there was something completely necessary for you to do? You know, I tried to rack my brain, and there's things that came through, like you have to obey the law, you have to pay your taxes. But if we're real with ourselves, even those things you can get away with. Even those things you can break. Even things that are necessary in your life you can abandon. Has there ever been anything in your life that you completely necessary to do? 
we live with such freedom and independence. These wonderful blessings that we have in our, in our country. There are things that we should do, but really it's hard to think of things that are actually necessary for us to do. Um, often my wife will ask me, she says, you know, if we're eating dinner or we're sitting down or we're just on a date night or whatever, she says, do you love me? Guys, do you ever get that? Do you love me? And I say, of course I love you. And then she looks back at me and says, you're just saying that because you have to. You ever got that before, guys? Now, I need to explain this. The desire to love her came before my need to love her, my necessity to love her. The desire came way before. I had this desire to love her. And then we got married, and then we committed in marriage. We vowed before God and friends that we were going to love each other and be committed to each other. This was the necessity to be bound by these vows. So now there's this necessity to love her. I am called to love her. But the desire came way before. And we see this blending of desire and necessity in the person of Jesus Christ. He understood that it was necessary for him to to die. But we also read in Scripture that says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Christ had this wonderful, mysterious blend of desire to die for us, but also understood his need to die for us, knowing that if he didn't accomplish this work, there was no hope for us. There was nothing else that could be done. And like in a marriage, he has vowed himself to us to be our God, to be our Redeemer. But his desire to love us came before his need for that. Understanding your desire as well as your necessity to obey Christ, that is my definition of devotion. Understanding what does it mean to be a devoted believer? What does it mean to be a Christian? Understanding the blend of our desire and our necessity to be in an intimate relationship with Christ. So what is your, your number one compelling force in your life? What is the one thing that when life hits you right between the eyes and chaos happens and things get turned upside down, what do you go to that helps you get some relief from all of that? Is it friends? Is it family? Is it work? Is it this image of yourself? that you try to uphold, and maybe if I just maintain my cool, things will get better. What is your number one thing that everything centers around? Jesus was a carpenter for his earthly father, Joseph. That was his work. And even that, he understood, was not his number one work. He says, my work is to do the will of God. And here he is found in a temple and says, I must be about, I must be in my father's house. This is my work. So his work, his earthly work took a back seat. It took us maybe top five, but it was still not number one. Is it weird to hear that family is not number one? 
Is it hard when I say that family is not the most important thing in life? Except in-laws, of course. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus is, of course, pro-family. Jesus is pro-family. pro-family. But on different occasions in the New Testament, we hear that He says that more important than family and in-laws and brothers and sisters is His involvement in the mission of God. His work with God. Jesus' faithfulness to the desires of God was the number one compelling force in His life. So what do you do when, when life hits you? When chaos happens? When, or even more, when there are gray areas in a relationship or a situation in life? Because we all have those things. There are so many things throughout our day and weeks and months that happen and we're saying, I don't even, I don't know exactly what to do. The scripture isn't explicitly clear and I don't have wisdom on it. What do I do? We have those situations. You may be in one of those situations right now where you're kind of leaning one way or the other. What do you do? Do you go to your friends and say, what do you think? And then say, whatever you say, I'm going to do that because you're a smart person. Or do we weigh that against what our devotion to Christ, our desire and our necessity to be in this constant, connected relationship with God? Can you imagine how our life would look your life and my life, what it would look like if we lived out of complete necessity with God. This picture is pretty amazing. What would your what would your family look like if every day you made decisions based on your necessity to pursue God? I mean, that's almost unfathomable. It's almost I, I can't even wrap my head around that. What life would how awesome that would be to be in this un this this connected an undisturbed relationship with God. And this is what Jesus had. Even as a little boy, he understood this. He had this unwavering devotion to God. There's a clear difference between being lost in the things of the world and being lost in the things of God. And the Apostle Paul puts things in plain terms for us. And and so let's look at that. I'll read it uh, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul shows this contrast between what life looks like when we're lost in the things of the world, and what life looks like when we're lost in this intimate relationship connected with God, as Jesus was. Paul says in verse 16, I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He says, But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now here are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You know what? As I look at this list, it is very easy for me to look at this list and say, well, I don't do half of those. Idolatry? Sorcery? I'm not a wizard. You know, orgies? I mean, who does these kinds of things? I am not as bad as these things listed here. And then I see others. Jealousy, bitterness, enmity. I mean, are are there relationships that there's this strife 
in between you, maybe it's with a spouse or a child or a friend or someone, an enemy, that there's this discord, this continual discord, fits of anger. Well, I think that those are a lot, those hit a lot more close to home for me. Maybe they do for you as well. These are fruits of being lost in the world. These are fruits, these things happen when we forget to be completely connected to Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those, look at this last verse, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. It's interesting how Christ is found in the temple to provide a sacrifice for you and I. You know the next time in recorded New Testament when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, to that temple, that's the week he's crucified? Paul says, if we find ourselves with Christ, and if we are with him, we will also become a sacrifice. Now, not in the same sense that Christ has become a sacrifice. We're not dying for anybody's sins, and maybe none of us, one at the most of us, will actually be put to death for our, for our faith. That may never happen. But we do need to put to death the things of our flesh. Those, those impulses and those fruits of our flesh and our sinful desire, we identify with Christ's sacrifice by being a living sacrifice each and every day. And if we are with Christ, we find ourselves also in the temple ready to make a sacrifice, confronted with this inconvenient truth that we need to give up something and a sacrifice uh, never turns out too good for the thing being sacrificed, does it? No. Whether it's a blood sacrifice, well, that's it. Whether it's a burnt offering, it's consumed and completely vanishes. When we sacrifice these things, it's our intention to say, give it all up to Christ and say, these are the things that I'm struggling with, and you alone can take these off of my hand, off of my heart. So I want to identify with you, Christ, by being a living sacrifice. As painful as it might be, this is what I desire to do, and this is what I must do. Jesus was never lost in the things of the world. He never sinned because he was never lost in those things, but he was always lost in the things of God. And when his parents found him, he said, why were you even looking for me? Didn't you know that this is where I would be? Lost with God, completely consumed with this. How do we stay lost with Christ? That's what we want to take away from this, right? Like, how do you and I stay lost in the things of God? How do we maintain this relationship with Him? One way is regular time in, in word and in prayer. You know what I love about this passage? After all this happened and all this, confu this confusing, utterly confusing encounter with, with Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? 
And Mary was confused. Mary, it says that Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was saying. And then the passage says that Mary treasured these things in her heart. You know, our passage tells us this, and, and she knew that something important just happened. She didn't know exactly what it meant. She didn't know exactly how it would change her life, but she knew that something wonderful was happening. And so she hid it in her heart, and she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about this for a while. I'm going to let this sit with my heart. I'm going to contemplate on it for a while until I can really grasp what does this mean for me. And it's so, it's so easy to be in the habit of, of reading Scripture and going to church and talking about theology and, and then forgetting about it and letting it be a, a flippant thing. I hope that we can be in the habit just like Mary by, as we, as we go through this passage, but as you spend personal time in prayer, and in, and in the Scriptures, that you say to yourself, God, I don't know exactly what this means to me, but I want to dwell on this. I want to internalize it. I want to sit on this for a while so that it changes me and so that I can understand what this means for my life. Things don't slow down. There, I don't think that there will be this wonderful pocket of time that will just drop in your lap and you're like, well, now I can have all this time to just spend thinking about God. Because life, life is busy. And if it's not busy with one thing, then something else happens. And maybe when something slows down for a moment and, we're, and we feel like we can rest, then something happens real big that just shakes our world. And we need to be constantly dwelling on the things of God. Another thing we can do is regular time and, and meaningful fellowship with the body of Christ. Being encouraged by one another. You know, when life turns upside down, you know there's other people going through the exact same things. Maybe not the exact same situation, but you know people are having struggles and doubts and confusions, and we need to stick together as a body. We need to provide those times where we, are, we don't come and sit and then leave and then have struggles in our marriage or at work or with, with other people and then no, nobody to really share that with. We need to look for ways to join the mission of the church, and that's to be involved in the work of Christ. What are some ways that, that you guys can, you, you ladies and, and, and men, can be involved in the mission of Desert Springs? I mean, that's a, that's a big question, isn't it? You could think about that for a while. You guys are in the middle of this, of this change and transition where God is, is doing some wonderful things, but at times it might feel like there's some confusion or what's the next step? Where do, we, where do we go from here? But the mission stays the same, doesn't it? The mission of Desert Springs stays the same. How can you, as, as, as people involved in this church that you call home, how can you engage yourself in that mission? Being a part of lives that are being changed. Being a part of of spreading the good news of the gospel to people in your, in your circle of influence. You can do it, and you don't need to be a certain age to start doing it. That's another way that we can all um, stay lost in the things of Christ, by being a part of that mission. And lastly, regular repentance. Scripture says, um, bear, keep bearing fruit by keeping with repentance. Bear with fruit by keeping with repentance. Repentance and confession is this spiritual act of, of changing our mind, 
of going in one direction, realizing that that's not where we want to go, and turning back. Now, think of the situation, Mary and Joseph, one day into it, they're at Casa Grande, and they realize, where's Jesus? We've lost him. He's not here. Now imagine this conversation. Well, I'm sure he'll show up. Let's just keep going. That doesn't seem like a very smart idea, does it? Well, maybe he's at home waiting for us. <laughs> maybe when we get there, he's just really fast and he's just there. But they didn't do that, did they? They recognized that something was misplaced and something was wrong. They stopped and they turned back to the last place they remember seeing him. They repented in a, in a way and went back. We need to do that. We need to be in the habit of doing that. We need to be in the habit of... And that's what being in, the God's, in God's Word and, and meeting with others and being involved in the mission of the church helps us to realize that we have weaknesses. And that when we realize that we have wandered, our hearts have wandered in little ways, we need to go back to where we remember our devotion to Christ. It's our spiritual act of turning our hearts to Christ. And there are two things that we find. When we turn our hearts to Christ, there's two things that we find. One's very ugly, and one is very beautiful. When we turn our hearts to Christ, we see our sin. When we go to the temple, we realize this temple's here for a reason. Because we've wandered, and it's ugly. But then we see something beautiful. And that's the grace of God. We see two things. We see how we have wandered from God, and that's not right. And then we see the sacrifice of Christ and His forgiveness for our sin. And that's the, that's the last thing that we see. We should, we, that should always be our lasting impression. And we're going to sing a hymn of celebration in a minute. We celebrate because we are confronted with our sin, and we don't like it, but we're celebrating, not because we're sinful, we're celebrating because Christ has given us hope, and He's forgiven us. And that is good news. And those are the two things that we're confronted with when we repent. Now, if we repent and, and we're still left with that sin, then we've missed a very important component. If, if someone is telling you you've messed up, and even though God forgives you, you still need to feel really bad. Something has, we've missed some kind of component there. Because Christ's forgiveness forgives our sin completely. I'll close with this. We've all lost things, whether it be a wallet or our keys or shoes or one sock. And I've gone to my wife and I say, honey, have you seen my shoes? And what does she say? Last time I wore them, I put them back where they go, right? Or, I, not to embarrass her, but this, we've heard that before. Or, um, um, where was the last place you had them? Hello, if I knew the last place I had them, I'd go there that's, and that's where they'd be. I'd say, oh, they're in the bathroom. And I'd go to the bathroom. I'm like, there are my shoes. You know? I don't know why I take my shoes off in the bathroom. I, I don't. That just came to me. Where, but it, it, it's kind of silly, but at the same time, it's, it's really profound. I mean, when we have wandered from God and we realize that our hearts have wandered in certain ways and we've become lost in the world a little bit, we need to go back to the last place we remember things started to get a little weird. We go back to that place. You know, maybe for some of us, it's the cross itself. Maybe it's like, you know what? I remember realizing that Christ died for my sins, but ever since, I've been utterly and completely 
confused and sad and misguided and just, I don't know what I'm doing. Go back to that place where you realized the, the core of the gospel, that you've messed up, but Christ has died for your sins. Maybe that's where you need to go. Or maybe a relationship has turned sour and you think, where was, how did that get weird? If it's with your spouse, where did we start to become so disconnected? Was it when things got busy? Was it when, when the baby came? Now, I'm not telling you, think, look at the things in your life that have kind of helped, you know, helped to wander your heart from God and then get rid of those things, you know. Get rid of your wife. Get rid of the baby. Get back to when life was simple, right? What I want you to do is I want you to ask, how can we use these things, repent of the things that we've done, and use these things to glorify God? How can these help us? How can these things help us to be lost in the things of God? How can you work with your wife? How can you enjoy your child and raising them to being lost in Christ, lost in the things of God together? How can you reconcile, mend a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor to glorify God with that relationship? Go back to the last place where you remember things were where you felt God wanted you to be. That's what the temple represents for us. We want to be where Christ is. We want to be focused on the things that Christ is focused on because we know when we find Him in those things, it'll be exactly what is best for us. It'll be exactly where Christ wants us to be. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You are our Lord and our King, but You are our Savior first. God, thank You for dying for us, for providing a sacrifice for us, for giving up everything for being completely consumed of the things of God and never being wrapped up in the things of the world. God, we get that way sometimes. Sometimes we wander and we look for you in the wrong places. We think that you'll, you'll show up in, in uh, certain areas, but really sometimes those things are self-centered, self-serving. Help us to seek you out with all of our heart. Help us to reflect on our weaknesses and our sins, and come out of that reflection with celebration, accepting your forgiveness that you've provided for us. When you died on the cross, you took care of our sin. We don't have hope without that, God. And so we search for you with all of our heart. We ask that you'd give us the strength, that you would call us, that you would compel us to keep following you, that you would give us the joy of your salvation, the desire to follow. Also help us to realize our need for you each and every day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.